Our uh, scripture passage this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, as we work our way uh, through this letter of the Apostle Peter to the Lord's people scattered, we found out early uh, in this book, scattered in different places, uh, yet the chosen of God. And so we're going to be reading 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7, we're uh, in that pass, in that uh, portion of this letter, where you remember the Apostle Peter has, in chapter two, urged us uh, as sojourners and exiles to wage war against the uh, passions that are waging war against our soul, and he's thinking about how we can live out what we believe uh, God has done for us in Christ uh, among the Gentiles. We're meant to uh, be a witness uh, in the world and culture. Uh, around us as those who are holy and chosen and the treasured possession of God. And so he's been talking about uh, human governments. Uh, He's been talking about households and servants in the household. And then we come in chapter 3 to wives, husbands in the home. And so this is the word of the Lord, 1 Peter 3. Likewise, uh, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some... Do not obey the word. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the eternal and abiding word of God. So let's pray for his help to understand it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again today for the the blessing we have to be able to, to come to this place Uh, to sing your praises, but also, Lord, to know that that you have spoken. And as we even speak to you in prayer through the Lord Jesus, Lord, the the wonder that you have first spoken to us, uh, not only in the creation around us of your glory and in our own persons, revealing something of your glory and wonder, us being images of God, and uh, but Lord, especially have you spoken in the revealed scripture and in the person of your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that as that word is before us again, uh, that you would open our eyes to see great and glorious truths in your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This past week, I was uh, reading in the um, theological magazine, uh, First uh, Things, and came across an article by a PCA pastor in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, named Kevin DeYoung. Uh, you may have heard, heard of him. We have some of his books in our church library, written many helpful things uh, on the Christian life. And he had this article this past week called The Case for Kids. 
uh, in First Things Magazine. He was talking about the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of marriage, uh, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. Facts that no U- European country, no so-called Western nation is, has, a, has a birth rate that will replace itself, that all the Western countries are below the replacement rate uh, of, of births and so forth. He was talking about the fact that people are getting married later and later uh, in life. Um, and so he had this article, The Case for Kids. This is what he wrote. The disintegration of the family will not be undone in five years, maybe 50 if the Lord allows. Still, he says, we can do our part to promote social health in the here and now and to sow seeds for a later harvest. Well, how do we do that? Well, he suggests this. We must place the family uh, at the center of our lives. Not a God, of course, but one of the very best things God wants us to pursue. Pastors, he says, should make sure their people know that the most direct path to changing the world starts with changing a diaper. I thought that was kind of catchy. To get married, he says, raise children in the church and stay married is a life well lived. Just once, he says, I'd like to see a Christian college spotlight a stay-at-home mom in its alumni magazine. We must understand marriage as the exchange of duties and obligations, not merely of emotions and experiences. The post-war baby boom was actually a marriage boom. The average size of families did not increase as much the number of people forming families did. So it was more people were forming families, not just having more children. Since 1950, he writes, the average age of first marriage for women has increased from just over 20 years old to almost uh, 28. Women are having fewer children, in part because they're having fewer married years in which to have children. And surely for both sexes, he says, resisting the allure of pornography and fornication is not made easier when sexual desires burn hot for 10 or 15 years before marriage is even considered. The Bible never says thou must finish thine education before marriage or backpack through Europe before marriage or make time to binge watch Netflix before marriage. The Bible does say it's better to marry uh, than to burn with, with passion. Uh, marriage as a gift uh, from uh, the Lord. Well, of course, the Bible has much to say about the family, much to say about marriage, much to say about Wives and husbands, you've got Ephesians 5, you've got Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 2, and more. Why? Why so much in the Word of God on marriage? Well, because the individual family, of course, a family unit, whatever that family might be made up of, are the the building blocks of the structure of our society and societies around the world. And the relationship of husband and wife is the cement that holds the family together. It would seem that uh, everywhere, though, in our society... Uh, the family is under attack, if not disintegrating, with questions like these. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? What should a young man or young woman be thinking when considering marriage? How should I think about the opposite sex at all? And where do we go to find the answer to such questions? Well, we could go to the culture, I imagine, and ask, How would the current world I'm living in answer these questions? And the answer of the world around us, again, Peter's writing to the church, living in the world. Uh, We want to know what the world... uh, So if we went to the world for answers to all those questions, uh, the answer would be... Something like that. I I wrote down the word confusion, but I thought I would give you the visual. Uh, Unclear. Confused. 
Um, the fact is, we're living through a time in our culture where there's been a tremendous breakdown of understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman, a husband or wife in our culture, and what role men and women are to play. Now, the reality, of course, is that a breakdown in the culture with regard to the role of men and women finds its roots in a breakdown in the home of what it means to be a husband and a wife. Now, you remember the Apostle Peter then is preparing us for life in this world. Who is he talking to? Remember, he's talking to the born again, those who are caused to be born again by the sovereign grace of God. The redeemed, blood-bought, word and spirit indwelt believer knows that he or she is chosen, holy, royal, treasured possession of the Lord himself, and as such is meant to live such a a God-filled life in this world that others, remember Peter said, will take notice and not give glory to you, but give glory uh, to God and see that you don't belong to yourself, but you belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, suffering may come. Suffering will come. In fact, you are called to suffering, but you will walk in the steps of your Savior who suffered before you, and in fact, who, who went all the way to death for you so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And then the question, of course, is, well, what does that righteousness look like in the real world? What does it mean to die to sin and live to righteousness, for instance, in our relationship to the government, which he's talked about? Well, he told us we're set free from sin so that we might understand we are servants of God. Freedom itself is not an idol. We're not free to serve ourselves. We're set free in Christ, servants of God. And then he spoke about servants being subject to their masters in the first century Roman Empire. Um, Couldn't do anything about it. They were sold into slavery. How were they to, to live in such a situation? Well, continue being faithful to Christ, and uh, 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 unjust suffering will come, but you be mindful of God, and you keep pressing on faithfully in service of Christ. And now, at the beginning of a new section, he carries on the theme of being in subjection by addressing wives and husbands. Now, this morning, we're going to consider Christian wives, uh, and next week, we're going to consider Christian husbands. And so the passage begins this way, likewise, wives... Uh, be subject uh, to your own husbands. And some of you might be saying, stop right there. I'm closing my ears right now. Wives, be subject? Are you kidding me? What century is this? Well, hold on. The command uh, to be subject here is the word submission. It's the same word we find elsewhere in Peter. And in fact, uh, a word that is to characterize, we find out actually every Christian uh, when thinking about human institutions. He used the same word back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, to be subject to the governing authorities. But here it's used of wives in relation to their husbands. And now the very mention sometimes of the word submission makes maybe some, some women's hair stand on end and they, they begin to clench their fists. But listen to this uh, definition of submission given by John Piper, Wayne Grudem in their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I think it's real helpful. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. To submit or to be subject biblically is not about being dominated by or oppressed by someone. How could it be uh, when the Bible says that the church is to submit to Jesus? Jesus oppresses no one. 
Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then the end of verse 33 of that chapter says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2.4, older women are to mentor younger women in the church. How? Well, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, submission or to be subject here doesn't mean to submit to sin. Uh, There's no authority in our life greater than Christ. Submission does not mean giving in to every demand of your husband. Submission does not mean not thinking for yourself. Clearly, Peter is addressing wives here as responsible moral agents. They need to respond to the teaching of God. Now, that itself would have been radical in, in Peter's day in first century Rome. You would simply address the the father and tell the father uh, what to tell the mother or what to tell the daughter or something like that. So this is already a radical thing. No, these these wives are to hear this word and they need to respond. Submission does not mean the wife is not to have an influence on her husband. Clearly, Peter expects the opposite in this passage. But submission does mean recognizing God-ordained roles in marriage because this is what God does in the Scripture identifies those roles. The husband is not the wife. The wife is not the husband. They are not interchangeable. God has defined specific roles in the home that are meant to bring blessing. And that is why uh, there is a so that. There is a great purpose here in this uh, wife being subject to her husband. Note also right at the beginning of this passage, the likewise, that should uh, inform you that, wait a minute, this isn't a whole new topic. And uh, when I'm thinking about this, I shouldn't be thinking, well, this is a whole new thing that Peter's starting to speak about here. Uh, that likewise, of course, refers back to, uh, uh, to where he's already spoken of uh, those being subject. Verse 13, verse 18, he's going to say likewise again in verse 7, speaking of husbands. Uh, he's going to say in verse 8, finally, all of you And so uh, what's happening here is by this use of likewise, 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 what he's saying here is there is a great foundational, there's a great foundational principle that applies to you, to you, to you, and to you. And what is that foundational concept? Well, it all goes back to when he was talking about uh, that we're not been given freedom to serve ourselves, but we've given been freedom to be a servant of God. This is how you be a servant of God, wife. This is how you be a servant of God, husband, and all of you. This is how you be servants of God. And so that's just a little bit on the opening of this passage. But first of all, then, he is going to address a word to wives in verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so in this particular uh, context, it appears that Peter seems to be addressing the situation in first century Rome, where a wife came to faith, but her husband was an unbeliever. That seems to be the very specific situation he is addressing. Writes one commentator, in the middle of the first century, a wife was expected to profess the religion of her husband. If the husband adopted the Christian faith, his spouse would have to do so too. But if the wife became a Christian, her husband would consider her unfaithful to him and his pagan religion. And as you can imagine, this caused tension in the home. Peter, therefore, counsels these wives to submit to their spouses, even if their husbands make life miserable for them because of their Christian commitment. 
Um, this is what Peter says. Now, Peter takes for granted then that this will be the case. Um, now, remember now, Peter's not talking about Christian women uh, purposefully marrying an unbelieving man. That is a sin, and that is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. You are to marry only in the Lord. If you're a Christian, you don't go looking for an unbeliever to marry, hoping that you can somehow convert them. No, Peter's talking about the situation where you're a couple in early century Rome, you're both pagans, uh, but then one is converted to the faith. Then what do you do? Well, he takes for granted that this is going to happen. Godly, Christ-loving, word-following, spirit-filled women are going to be married to unbelieving, word-rejecting husbands. Wives who love to worship, love to study the Bible, love to meet with God's people, pray and serve, sing and speak about their joy in the Lord, they're going to be married at times to husbands who are indifferent and sometimes openly opposed to the Christian faith. He takes this uh, for granted. It's the wife, for instance, who'd have to say to that husband, let's pray. It's the wife who has to say, "Um, shouldn't we go to church? It's the wife who has to say, shouldn't we take our children to Sunday school and be there when, when there's Sunday school? Shouldn't we go to worship today, husband? Now, how should such a believing wife live in the face of that indifference and opposition, being opposed by an unbelieving spouse? Now, the world says, of course, get out. Get out of there. It's not worth it. Uh, why bother? You know, the world around us would say, You're incompatible. You're not being fulfilled. Get out. That is not, says Peter, the gospel way. What he says is, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Um, Now, he's he's talking here, of course, to uh, wives. He's saying to your own husbands. He's not saying be subject to every husband in the church. Uh, He's not saying be subject to every man on the planet. He's saying, uh, be subject, be in submission uh, to your own husband, not subject to all men, not in submission to men as a class. Peter is saying here, in the husband and wife relationship, uh, it's good for the wife to be in submission to her husband. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, the head of the wife is her husband, the head of every man is Christ. And that's important. If In God's good plan, the Bible is saying, for the functioning of the home and marriage, here and elsewhere, the husband is to be the spiritual head, and the wife is to be in submission. That doesn't mean she's a slave to her husband. Verse 7 will say, uh, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace uh, of life. Joint heirs of the grace of life. But the Bible says the husband is called uh, to imitate Christ in leading, caring for, providing for, spiritually encouraging his wife. And the Christian wife is called to sweetly submit to that leadership. No no one is superior uh, in the marriage relationship. Neither is superior to the other. But God has given roles for husband uh, and wife. And of course, those roles are based, uh, we're told, in the book of Ephesians on the relationship of Christ uh, and the church. And so Ephesians 5.22 says this way, Wives, submit to your own husband, same language as Peter, As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her. And so, talking about wives today, uh, talking about husbands next week, but if you're thinking to yourself, boy, what could be, what could be harder than submitting uh, to a sinful person? Well, how about giving yourself up for a sinful person? Uh, so whether it's wife or husband, the call here is to be a servant. And like our submission to human institutions, that submission is never absolute. We must obey God rather than men. Now, here's the thing. In this case, the Bible says the unbelieving husband may be won by the submissive, respectful, and pure conduct of their wives. Did you notice that? Submit to your husband so that even if... So Peter's not saying, uh, I'm only speaking to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. I'm speaking to all wives, all Christian wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some are not Christian and they don't obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That is, that's something about your... You're living faithfully in a difficult situation for Christ, living to righteousness in that situation, that would be used by God to somehow draw that unbelieving husband to Jesus himself. Peter ta- or Paul talks about winning others. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, To the Jew I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jew. Uh, to those without the law I became as those without the law, in order to win those without the law. It's a common language in the scripture, the, the idea of, uh, and there Paul too, saying maybe adopting some customs and not sinning or anything like that, but somehow by my life um, being used by God, that, that this person might somehow be one to the gospel. They won't be one uh, without, without uh, ever a word. They're going to need to come to know who Jesus is. But the idea here is that, that by the life of this wife, the husband will be drawn to Christ, drawn to then worship, drawn to hear his word somewhere, to hear the call of the gospel. So God calls the Christian wife to show submissive love to her husband, her unbelieving husband even, so that he's able to see something of Christ's love for sinners in her. Now that's amazing. But remember, this is all rooted in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, right? He bore, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does that mean for a Christian woman who knows that Christ has died for her on the cross? What does it mean for a Christian woman who's married to live to righteousness? Well, it means that she will be following Christ even in the face of opposition and uh, being faithful to Christ that way. And God's going to use her faithful life in order to draw even perhaps her own unbelieving husband, to faith in Christ. Did you know that? A wife is a means, uh, a wife is a means of sanctification. You know, when you get married, um, you're, you're still sinners. Uh, and so uh, we talked about this when we studied, studied marriage as couples a year or two ago, but you are two sinners getting married. So when you're married, uh, the Lord actually uses your husband, uses your wife uh, to make you more like Jesus. And... Uh, all their sin and all their baggage and all their difficulties, that's there, not so that you can get upset with them and hammer them and you know, hit them over the head, uh, but that's there so that the Lord will use that spouse in order to draw you closer to Jesus. Your, your, your spouse is a means of sanctification. But here the Lord says, by a, a faithful uh, life as a Christian wife, 
Uh, you might even be used by God as a tool, not simply of their sanctification, but to bring them to faith. A tool of uh, salvation. You see, that's how important your life and your walk is. That they may, notice what Peter says, that they may be one uh, without a word. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that you never speak of Jesus because the faith comes by hearing, right, and the message of Christ. But what Peter is saying here by the Spirit is that there's a, there's a certain priority here, that if you're in this situation, the first thing you need to be thinking about is I need myself to faithfully live for Jesus, no matter what their response might be. That's important, friends. That means that we do not always have to use words to point others to Christ. In fact, Peter is saying, uh, uh, your, um, your life here, everything you do is filled with eternal significance. Because often by our behavior, our life, our living, our loving, our conduct here, uh, respectful and pure, we're mindful of God, mindful of his word and his will. Uh, through that, says Peter, often will be a picture to unbelievers of what the gospel is all about and thereby direct them to Jesus to the Bible, to his word, to a place of worship where they will hear words of life that they first saw in you. Isn't that true? Why, do you, why would any of your friends come to this place of worship? Well, they're not going to wake up one morning and say, I think I'll go to Sovereign Grace. No, because maybe they're your neighbor. You've had them over for dinner. You've shown love to them care for them. Maybe they were sick and you dropped off a meal. And then one day, um, you say, hey, would you like to join me at worship? And they'll say, well, I don't know. But then they'll think about uh, your love for them. They'll think about, you know what, I really like this neighbor and there's something something about this neighbor. Hmm. Yeah, I'll come. And they come to the place of worship. And then they hear the gospel of Jesus, but, it, but it, it started maybe with simply them seeing Jesus lived out in your life. That's what Peter is talking about here, a word to wives. Second thing here, uh, he also gives us a word on true beauty as he is addressing Christian wives. He goes on to explain the difference between what is attractive and beautiful in the world and what is attractive and beautiful to God. We could call it the beauty that never fades. Listen to what he says, do not, verse 3, do not... Let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, unfading, undying beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, let's first of all deal here with the thought, well, wait a minute, is, is Peter saying by the spirit uh, no braids, no gold, no clothes. Well, no, he can't be saying that, right? Sometimes people look at this passage and say, well, here, you know, all oh, the Bible's so old-fashioned, it's saying you can't, wear, you can't wear any kind of jewelry, you can't do anything with your hair. Well, if that's what he's saying, he's also saying you can't wear any clothes. No, that's, of course, not what he's saying, is it? He's talking about uh, ostentatiousness. He's talking about focus. He's talking about priority. He's talking about, yes, of course, you wear clothes, and I'm thankful. Uh, and you're thankful too. We all wear clothes when we come to worship. 
We do that. But if when you come to worship, the only thing you're thinking about that's pleasing to God is your clothing, you're in trouble. So whether it's your clothing, your jewelry, your hair, whatever it is, don't be thinking about that, says Peter. Don't put your emphasis there, your concern there, Christian wife. Now you might say to yourself, well, hold on now, this sermon's not for me, I'm not a wife, so I can tune out till next week. I'm not a husband, um, so I think, oh, I can tune out for two weeks. I'll come back in three weeks' time, I'll take a snooze for a couple weeks. Not so fast. Not so fast. This passage is addressed to wives, yes, uh, but what it says here is not limited to wives, and that there are principles here for all Christians, all ages, all situations. First of all, notice how Peter contrasts external adornment, this kind of stuff on the outside, and he speaks here about the hidden person of the heart. Do not let your adorning be external, then verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. That word hidden person of the heart means the inner, means the inner self. So here's what he's saying. All of us have an external adornment. That is what you see on the outside that's displayed to the world. The clothing we wear, uh, our shoes, jewelry, makeup, haircut, glasses, hearing aid. This is what we all see. And as a result, Peter knows we spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time on external uh, adornment. But here's, the, here's perhaps the surprising thing. Did you know that there is also something in the Bible called an internal or a hidden adornment? That is, the hidden person of the heart, when that person comes to worship, that hidden person is also adorned somehow. And that, says Peter, what should be our concern. But that hidden person, of course, that inner self, is only seen by God. And yet, to God, it is the most important thing about you. And should be to us as well. You're all adorned inside, too, where no one else can see but God. Isn't that amazing? He can see. God can see your spiritual dress within. So outside, you could have a beautiful external adornment. Don't you remember Jesus talking about the Pharisees one time? You could have a beautiful external adornment, but inside you could be dressed in dead men's bones. Likewise, you could be dressed in, in, in a shabby external adornment, and yet inside dressed up in the finest of golden robes as a Christian. Now here's the point. For the Christian wife, where is the focus to be? We all have some kind of external adornment. The Bible's not rejecting that, but the emphasis here is on priority. Well, there is no doubt, the Bible says. The priority is the imperishable, that is the unfading, undying beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit because it's a beauty that never fades, never dies, and never perishes. Now, here's the thing. That word gentle... Uh, that particular word gentle is only used four times in the Bible. It's used here. It's used in the Beatitudes 
uh, when it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it is used two other times, and uh, it's used of uh, one person only, two other times in the whole of the New Testament. Can you guess who it is? Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus, when we think about gentle or blessed are the meek, uh, meek does not mean weak. Meek means strong. But meek and gentle means that Jesus uh, was the one who was completely devoted uh, to his Father's will. He was, he was, he was, uh, all he had on his mind was serving his heavenly Father. That made him meek, gentle among men because his mind was on serving the Savior. And so what, what Peter is saying here for the Christian wife don't be getting all concerned, and the rest of don't be getting all concerned about the external adornment, whoever you are, but know that you've got a hidden person of the heart that's dressed too. And what is especially precious in the sight of God is that when inside that hidden person, he sees the likeness of his son in gentleness, meekness, ready to serve the Lord in all things, because the fact is, this is the only, <laughs> this is the only imperishable beauty, you see, likeness to Christ. That will never, ever, ever die. Um, hairstyles, by the way, they will. They come and go. Clothing fads, you know, I'll go to church one day, this is the latest. Well, it changes. Um, my skin texture will change and get wrinkly. Well, it is wrinkly. My hair changes. Your hair changes. But never, the Bible says, never the imperishable beauty of likeness to Jesus Christ. Hidden person of the heart. And that is very precious in God's sight. In fact, it says it is of great worth in God's sight. That's what he's looking for. Likeness to Jesus within. Where does it come from? Uh, because Jesus himself has bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How did the Christian wife do that? Even with an unbelieving husband, uh, keeps her eyes on the Lord Jesus and walks in his way. Samuel had to learn this when he was looking to anoint a new king for Israel. And uh, all Jesse's sons in 1 Samuel 16 are brought before him. And the Bible tells the story. Uh, up, up comes uh, Eliab before Samuel, and he's a fine-looking man. And, Sa and Samuel says, oh, <laughs> oh, this has got to be the next king. God says, no. No. Because the Lord says to Samuel, Man looks, you see, on the, on the external appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. The heart. And uh, for Christian wife today, Christian woman today, the point is this. If we could recapture what true beauty is all about, the beauty that never fades, that would mean that the church and uh, Christian wives would stand out in a hostile culture where beauty is only skin deep. And, uh, and, and Peter says, listen, you've got, you've got examples, women. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, your hopes in God, that's how they used to adorn themselves, by doing just this, submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Lord and Master, very common in that day. Uh, didn't mean that he was, you know, uh, dominating her or anything like that. It was a, a practical application of the principle. I am in submission to, to my husband, called him Lord. And you are her children. Here's the thing. If you do good, which is what Peter's been just been encouraging them to do in Christ, and do not fear anything, that is frightening. I think his point here is this. If you're a woman today thinking about what matters most to God, you may be discouraged by the world around you where uh, pornography fills the internet, exploiting and abusing women. And uh, there's a constant bombardment of images in America of what a woman is to be and what may be pleasing in the eyes of men. And the Bible says, do not fear anything that is frightening. Don't give way to peer pressure uh, or social media. You have a better place to look to for examples. Like the holy women of old. How so? Well, they hoped, says Peter, in God. And they adorned the inner person of their heart. And if they were married, they submitted in love and faith to their husbands. And so if this is what a Christian wife is called to focus on, then I guess if you're not yet a wife, if you're wanting to be a wife and you're a Christian woman, the Lord would have you ask this morning, what should I be focused on? What truly makes me beautiful? And if you're a man here today who's, who's married, what do you, what do you uh, look to from your wife as far as what you think makes her beautiful to you? And what do you tell her makes her look beautiful? And if you're a young man thinking, what should I be looking for in a, in a Christian woman that I might one day marry? Well, a Christian man, you see, is always thinking, first of all, about the imperishable beauty of the hidden person of the heart. Because one day, the external adornment will be shown, of course, for what it is. Uh, because I suppose one day all of us will be, will be in a casket, right? We will all die. And all our external adornment will be, will be just there. But the hidden person of the heart, you see, will be living forever. And that body, too, will be raised but it's the hidden person of the heart, the Bible says, that's got to be the focus of the church, got to be the focus of a Christian wife. So that even, even in being faithful to Christ in this way, Peter says that even if your husband is not a Christian, or maybe he's a professing Christian, but he's not really a Christian, that through the faithfulness of that Christian wife, that says, Peter, that that, that husband, you see, might be one to Christ through your faithful love of Christ and walking with him before the world. May that be so uh, for us. Word to wives. Next week, a word to husbands. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word and uh, we're thankful, Lord, for, for your church and that we can gather 
uh, in this place this morning as those who confess that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that your word is eternal in the heavens. Oh, Lord, how we need that word to speak into our lives today, the changing times in which we live here in the United States of America. Oh, Lord, how we need that eternal word to be resting in our heart, that we would indeed live out this this truth that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we want to walk in your ways uh, before this world in which we live. And so, Lord, we pray today for uh, the women of this church, those who are our wives today, Lord, that they would take these words to heart to be encouraged, that what is very precious uh, in the sight of God, which is the only sight that truly matters eternally, is that hidden person of the heart, gentle likeness to Jesus Christ that only comes from giving our lives fully to him ourselves. And, O Lord, as as men today, as young men, O Lord, may we be convicted today, too, that this is what true beauty looks like, likeness to Jesus Christ, in all things, and may we pursue that beauty with all our heart and strength and mind. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.